uh, we're focused uh, today on a conversation with the ambassador of Iraq uh, to the United States. And there's hardly been a day uh, in the last decade and a half uh, when Iraq was not uh, in the news. Uh, more often than not on the front page, and more often than not above the fold on the front page. And this has uh, been more unfortunate than fortunate if one looks at it from the perspective of uh, human tragedies. Uh, but before uh, getting uh, to the dynamics and implications of those uh, realities, uh, we have to acknowledge uh, an indebtedness uh, amongst every one of us in this room uh, to Iraq and its people and certainly its ancestors. Uh, here is where the uh, world's first known alphabet <coughs> began to be written, devised, and uh, disseminated. And it's amazing how many thousand years later, they're largely, amongst Western languages, uh, nearly the same number of characters in the uh, alphabet from then till now, although the world's characters have changed uh, somewhat. Uh, Iraq, too, is the source of the first uh, codification of laws by which people can arrange their affairs plan and predict and anticipate with the prospects of an effective civil system uh, of justice. And if Herodotus was correct in saying with regard to Egypt that Egypt is the gift of the Nile, <clears throat> so too could one say that Iraq is the gift of the Dijla, well, Furat, of the Tigris and the Euphrates river. And likewise, along with that, uh, the world's first human settlements, and a close cousin of that, the earliest of urban challenges uh, for planning and administration and development, and even uh, human resource investment. Uh, Iraq is all of these things in addition to what it has uh, become increasingly in the last decade and a half. Uh, but today marks the anniversary of the Articles of Capitulation of Surrender in World War II uh, on the Western Front. Uh, so emblematically, symbolically, today is, is a day of no small moment. Uh, but since the American-led invasion of uh, Iraq, and its subsequent uh, uh, occupation. To say that Iraq has changed profoundly, domestically and externally, would be a profound uh, understatement. Uh, here is a situation where the population then was 24 million, and as a direct result of that invasion, some 4 million people became uprooted, traumatized, and made refugees, roughly two million external and two million domestically displaced uh, internally. That's one-sixth of Iraq's population. Uh, to grasp the uh, analogical dynamics of this, and one ponders the American population of 317 or 318 million people, this would mean some 
50 million Americans were made refugees as a result of a foreign-led invasion and occupation of a country that had not attacked the country that led that foreign invasion and occupation. We have a, an exactitude in terms of the numbers of Americans killed in action, and likewise the number of Americans wounded and maimed, scarred for life as a direct result of that invasion. What we do not have is a remote consensus on the number of Iraqis killed as a result of that invasion. And uh, the lack of clarity and certitude on this uh, has its own implications. From afar, it looks as though the American people and its spokespeople are self-serving, self-centric, uh, looking out for number one. It was the same in Vietnam. All Americans, for the most part, know that 58,000 Americans were killed there, and their names are enshrined on plaques on the National Mall. Few are aware that a minimum of 1.3 million Vietnamese were killed uh, during the American presence there. And likewise, the figures in terms of numbers of Iraqis killed, for which we might ask the ambassador to guide us to a more responsible bracket range of numbers, has been from a high, seemingly astronomically elevated number of 600,000, written by the most prestigious, prominent British medical journal, The Lancet, uh, barely two years after the invasion uh, was launched. And that figure was 600,000. Uh, at the Brookings Institution, there is uh, a website that you can refer to called Iraq Body Count. And there, the numbers are pushing, if not having exceeded 100,000. So the spread is enormous as are the implications. And then looking uh, also as a typographical error are the numbers of Iraqis that the United States government has allowed into the United States. <clears throat> Syria alone took 1.3 million uh, Iraqis uh, in the uh, opening months of the uh, occupation. And yet as late as three years after the American-led invasion, uh, the number of Iraqis allowed into the United States were fewer than 30,000. Syria's population was about 22 million. So it took uh, roughly 120th uh, into its borders without any compensation. We would add more than 300 million, took in fewer than 30,000. If one thinks or concludes that something's missing and wrong with that picture, it's because humanistically something is missing and wrong with that picture. We're talking about the translators, the drivers, uh, the interrogators, the facilitators, each and every one of whom in joining the forces that uh, invaded that country, and some emotionally but not far off the mark, factually would say, we killed a country, uh, or themselves uh, with bullseyes on their front and their back as such. However, in the process, 
the United States ended Iraq's national sovereignty, its political independence, its territorial integrity, the three criteria for admission into and maintenance of one's status in the United Nations. Uh, ponder whether it was worth it in the sense of toppling a dictator. And if one says, yes, it was worth it, uh, ponder the implications of that with regard to other dictators in the world. Uh, the relationship is still a privileged and prominent and prestigious one between Iraq and the United States. Uh, just in recent days, the first F-16 fighter aircraft from Lockheed Martin uh, came to Iraq and therefore at least it's en route to regaining its national sovereignty over its airspace. There have been more recent reports perhaps of the United States assisting the Iraqi government through the provision of drone uh, aircraft to try to get on top of the internal security uh, challenges. But here is also a place where uh, the United States uh, promises much to the American people and to the Iraqi people with regard to such American valued notions as democratization civil society, human rights, civil rights, gender rights, and the like. Uh, and yet the record has been spotty. Uh, we told during the Cold War, those in Hungary, all you need to do is rise up and we'll be with you. And they did rise up. We were not with the Hungarians. The Soviet tanks uh, rolled in and their uprising was crushed. We said the same thing to the Czechoslovakians in 1968. And they did rise up, and we set not one boot on the ground. And we said the same yet again in Iraq after the liberation of Kuwait in late February 1991. And the southern Iraqis did rise up, and yet we did nothing. So this uh, relationship is not all positive. It's troubled at the seams. Some would say it's troubled at the center. Uh, we have the ambassador to enlighten us on his view of this country and its opportunities and challenges and its relationship with the United States and its other allies, friends, and working partners. He comes to this task like many Iraqi leaders, having previously been in exile for fully two decades especially amongst the Iraqi exiles in London, uh, during which time he obtained his advanced education, undergraduate at the University of Manchester, and then increasingly focusing on business and technology issues, especially in the field of, of, of communications. Uh, he's been posted here to Washington uh, not very long, uh, but he's been welcomed during the time he's here as he is today. Please join me in welcoming Ambassador Lukman Al-Faili.
gentlemen. Good morning. Um, thank you for providing me with such an opportunity uh, with a platform at a very prestigious place. I think Patrick called Dr. Runt, he called him the Wikipedia. I would more or less call him the Oracle. <laughs> I also would like to thank the National Council for Arab, uh, for U.S. Arab relations, which is doing a great job at improving American knowledge and understanding of the Arab world. And I'm proud to be here today. Before I say more, I would like to thank the American people for helping the Iraqi people to free yourself from dictatorship. Dr. Anthony talked about the historical perspective. He talked about what I might call the formation of the, the pretext to the formation of the Second Republic, which Iraq has, is undertaking now. Uh, Iraq has had a, a tremendous uh, rich history. However, the recent uh, development, uh, mainly at the second part of the 20th century, has been one of uh, pure dictatorship, and pure uh, government, focus on militarizing the whole society, in which for the last uh, three, what we say, 35 years, three decades of that was uh, primarily in wars and civil wars and using its most ruthless weapons, scud missiles and others, chemical weapons and others, against its own people, let alone against our own neighbors, which is something we have to forget. So we start with a, somewhat a bad legacy to start a, a government and to start a new society based on a new paradigm of uh, looking into becoming a healthy member of the global community. Uh, there has been debate about whether Iraq has, or whether Iraq was worth American blood and treasure, including the sacrifice of too many of your sons and daughters. All I can say is that the Iraqi people and our neighbors throughout the region suffered terribly from Saddam's regime during the decades of prison. For all the challenges that we face, Iraq is better placed today than we were 11 years ago. And I will talk about that more, and I hope that Q&A will be challenging enough for me to talk about some of the taboo areas which Anthony tried to immediately mention. The topic of today's discussions, Iraq update, challenges and opportunities couldn't be more timely. Only nine days ago, on April 30th, 60% of the Iraqis, which is about 21.5 million eligible voters, participated in a parliamentary election at 8,075 polling centers across the This was the fourth national election since the overthrow of Saddam and the first since the withdrawal of American troops in late 2011. The vote counts continues to be underway, and the final results was expected to be erased by the end of this month. This election makes a milestone in Iraq's journey from despotism to democracy, and the international community is recognizing the progress we are making under very difficult circumstances. And that UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon's special representative for Iraq said in his election, said this election was, and I quote, 
the first entirely Iraqi-owned process in which the United Nations had an advisory role, but the leading role was with the Iraqi authorities. He added, and again I quote him, that the, Iraq, the Iraqis deserve a lot of credit for the very professional way in which they, were, they approached the organizations of the election. <clears throat> Despite the terrorist tactics to intimidate Iraqis and disturb the voting, we did everything we could to ensure that the election was free, fair, and transparent. Iraqis chose, Iraqis chose among more than 9,000 candidates from 107 political entities, competing for 323 parliamentary seats. 9,000 for 300 seats, so you can imagine the numbers. Roughly 30 persons per, per seat. Our electoral process encouraged an inclusive, not inclusive government. More than 2,600 women were on the ballot. 25% of the seats were allocated to women, as by the Constitution. And other seats are reserved for Christians and other religious and ethnic minorities. We took strong steps to ensure the accountability and transparency of this process. For the first time, Iraqi used the electronic voting card system. This system significantly minimized electoral fraud and it ensured that all voters are clearly informed about their polling stations in advance. Transparency means that we want observers to watch what we are doing. There was more than 650 foreign observers, including representatives from foreign missions and RFPs. There were 337,500 3, Iraqi observers, mainly representing political parties. More than four of every, uh, more, uh, more than uh, four, for, more than four for every polling station. These Iraqi observers came from both political parties and local NGOs and, local, and national NGOs. In addition, there were 278 accredited foreign media and 1,915 accredited Iraqi journalists. There was strong security on election day. In fact, with all the trouble you have here on the news, there was not a single security incident in Baghdad on that day. Special, special agreements were made to allow internal, internal displaced people to vote in the several provinces across Iraq. For Iraqi diaspora, there was out-of-country voting in 19 nations across the world. Here in the United States, there were polling stations in Illinois, California, Michigan, Texas, Arizona, Virginia, and Tennessee. While the ballots are still being counted, we know that every vote that was cast was a strong vote against the violent extremists. These terrorists were trying to frighten Iraqis from the polling state places in order to keep democracy from taking hold in our country. As the 60% turnout revealed, the terrorists failed, but the fight continued. I'm sure you are all aware of the ongoing battle against Al-Qaeda and their affiliates in the Anbar province. The threat we face are part of the larger struggle. The, terrorist we face, the terrorism we face is transnational in nature. Iraq, again, is the front line for this fight. We are the front line for this. And we have been there for, for some time now, for some time. 
It threatens our neighbors in the Middle East and North Africa directly. And ultimately, it endangers the U.S. and the entire world's security security. We are well aware of that purely military, we are aware that purely military approach will not succeed in stopping terrorism. Nor will it succeed in healing the sectarian, ethnic, and regional rift that the violent extremists exploit. This challenge requires a comprehensive strategy, including outreach and open, inclusive policies. We are striving to build a democracy where everyone has a voice. Because Al-Qaeda is targeting all Iraqis, whether they are Shunnis, Shiites, Arabs, Turkmen, or Kurds, among other groups, we are seeking to unite all Iraqis against Al-Qaeda. As a result of our outreach efforts, many tribes in Anbar have been fighting alongside the security forces in Ramadi, Fallujah, and elsewhere. Yes, as Secretary of State John Kerry stated, this is Iraq's fight, and we are accept, and we accept that challenge. But make no mistake, we will win this fight because of our tenaciousness, because of our unquestionable determination to avoid a return to tyranny. Here, let me be clear: Iraqis do not seek U.S. boots on the ground. We want to work with, within the strategic framework agreement which was signed between our two countries prior to the truth withdrawal. To bolster our joint efforts to defeat our common, common, common enemy, Al-Qaeda, and their offshots. Iraq and the United States have defeated Al-Qaeda before. We can do it again. Our blood is mixed together on Iraqi soil. We have been paying heavy prices for, price for this fight. We will not shy away from it again. And we will defeat Al-Qaeda again, as we did in the past. We will work with the tribes and the local citizens who, ha who help to protect their own community, and we will pursue the terrorist networks with sound intelligence and capable forces. The partnership between Iraq and the United States is based more, on, based more than just military cooperation. On the strategic front, Iraq wants to share information about the terrorist threats and to better coordinate our efforts against it. With the United States, I might add, and with the regional players. And we're doing that. On the diplomatic front, our partnership is developing into what President Obama described as a normal relationship based on mutual interest and mutual respect. Iraq and our Iraqis and our government value the opinion of our American friends. Your government makes decisions based on Americans' best interests, just as we make decisions based on our own interests. Most of the time, our goals converge. Most of the time, our goals converge. Sometimes they may diverge. There are occasions when the positions of our government may appear to to you to resemble that of your American, or to that of Americans antagonists in the region. But when that happens, you should rest assured that our reasons are distinctly different than those of your adversaries. For instance, on Syria, Iraq has been criticized for not joining the United States and others 
in seeking to remove Bashar al-Assad from power. As a result, some have unfairly lumped us with the supporters of al-Assad, having suffered under the Ba'athist regime led by Saddam, we understand and know that the Ba'athist regime led by Assad is not a friend of Iraq. Terrorists have used Syria as a base for targeting Iraqis for a decade now. In 2009, we lodged complaints against the Syrian regime at the UN, but many countries stood against us and protected Assad from doing so. And mainly this was at the Security Council level. Now times have changed and some accuse us of waiting to perpetuate Assad in power. I want you to perpetuate Assad in power. This is simply not true. We are not opposed to political change in Syria, on the contrary, but we are opposed to using destructive methods to bring about that change. First, the militarization of the conflict in Syria can only lead to a spread of violence and extremism which unfortunately has already spilled over its neighboring regions or its neighboring countries. Our Syrian brothers have suffered enough. If change in Syria will mean that Al-Qaeda and other extremist groups control large swathes of the country, then we oppose that kind of change. We oppose that kind of change. We seek a better future a negotiated settlement and the free chosen governments of national unity with the participation of all social sectors and an end to the bloodshed. We strive for a good relations with all the countries, especially our neighbors. Naturally, we have strong relationships with some of our neighbors than others. But without exception, we have extended a hand of friendship to all of our countries in the region. We have made great strides in mending our relationship with Kuwait. This resulted in the lifting of UN sanctions, and we are continuing to pursue dialogue in order to resolve any outstanding differences with other countries in the region. In all our dealings in the region, Iraq has made it clear that we oppose the introduction of nuclear weapons in the Middle East. If any country requires <coughs> nuclear weapons, it will immediately threaten regional security and stability. We strongly support moving the Middle East toward becoming a nuclear weapon-free zone. Last year, Iraqi, Iraq ratified the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. We hope other countries will ratify it as well. And we are pleased that America and Iran are both serious about a negotiated solutions to overcome differences for the sake of the reach of our region and for the sake of the world. This will certainly lead to the reduction of tension in already volatile part of the world. In Iraq, we do not shy away from our challenges. We acknowledge that the road ahead is filled with obstacles. We need to put an end to the surge of terrorism that continues to threaten the safety of our people, and we must strengthen our state institutions in order to effectively combat the corruption that is impending greater development and prosperity for our people. 
having come so far, we are determined to set the country on the path towards democracy, development, stability, and ultimately social harmony. This is why on the, on, on the economic front, we seek a stronger partnership with the United States based on investments and trade, not charity or aid. Iraq has one of the world's fastest growing economies, expanding by 9.6 in 2011 and 10.5 in 2012. Our oil production has increased by 50% since 2005. We are ex expected to emerge as the world's second largest energy exporter by 2030. This has been a critical factor in keeping global economy, global energy markets stable despite increased sanctions on Iran. We are investing our energy revenues in rebuilding our infrastructure, diversifying our economy, restoring our electricity, and reviving our education and healthcare systems. As we rebuild, Iraqis can be promising can be a promising partner for American companies and the fields in various fields. As an IT professional myself, I would add that Iraq offers great opportunities for companies in, in information technology, telecommunication, and other industries, where America, as Prime Minister Kampali, leads the world. Iraq recently announced plans to auction 3G telecommunication licenses, and we are keen to see America's companies under work under this market. As some of you may be might be here, only two weeks ago I ran the Boston Marathon in honor and in support of the victims of terrorism from back from Boston to Baghdad. And before you say that, yes, I'm still alive and I did <laughs> From the fight against terrorism to the world to the work of rebuilding our own country, many of our endeavors seem at last as long as hard as running a marathon. We want to run that race alongside our American friends. Together, we can climb heartbreak hills and reach the finish line of a prosperous and democratic Iraq, a more stable Middle East, and a world with less to fear from terrorism. Let me thank you all for giving me the opportunity to talk to you today, and I will be looking forward for your Q&A. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, in, in keeping with uh, protocol uh, of past uh, events, we'd ask if you do have questions for His Excellency, if you would kindly, there are note cards, uh, and there are pens actually in those packets with some legal pads for you to take back and uh, information about Wilkie Carr and Gallagher. Um, I'm not doing a commercial. Sure, no, that, that, that's wonderful. Um, so, Mr. Ambassador, I, I will, so anyways, questions on note cards, that's what I'm trying to con convey. So. Uh, just raise your hand if you have a question for the ambassador and the National Council's wonderful staff uh, will uh, will collect them. Check, check. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, you've generated uh, quite a few questions here. Um, I will try to group some of them. <laughs> 
<coughs> together to avoid uh, repetition and overlap as such. Um, how likely is it that the Kurdish regions will remain autonomous in the long term? And what are the implications of what happens to Kurdistan in any event uh, for Syria, uh, for Iran, and for Turkey? in particular, Turkey. As you are aware, the Kurdish question, the decision, the <coughs> aspirations of the Kurds have always been an outstanding question in the region. Iraq is one of those parts of the region. However, in relation to that, over the last, actually during the 20th century, the Iraqi part of the Kurdistan was a freer, more able, I would say even prosperous part of the whole Kurdish entities across the whole region. Kurds say that they are the largest <coughs> stateless MPP or nation in the world. What population is there? 40 million, I don't know. However, within the Iraqi part of that, they've had uh, autonomous agreements, They've had uh, able to talk the language, education, all kind of cultural events, political positions in the government, and so on. So, in a way, they had a, an easier ride on the Iraqi side. That's not the right word to use. And as the American, uh, sorry, as to the uh, straight after the Gulf War, uh, a safe haven was created with the international protection, primarily from the NATO and the Americans and therefore created a status quo in Iraq prior to the 2011-2003 American invasion. When the new Iraq was formed in 2003, a status quo already existed of a, an KRG, Kurdish regional government, with their parliament elections and press governing. We had to deal with the reality. A new federal political system was put in place. Uh, uh, a new constitution which was ratified by the Kurds and uh, others which said that we have a federal uh, setup. Uh, three provinces uh, are part of that federal setup and KRG, Kurdish region government, uh, became part of the new Iraq. That's the reality of the situation. How will it evolve? It will evolve more or less as how best we can work with each other how could we define and appreciate the new Iraq, provide a venue for others to express their views, and obviously the regional geopolitics becomes a, a crucial factor in that as well. The situation in Syria has not uh, helped. More than uh, 220,000 uh, refugees from the Syrian Kurds are in Iraq, so they've already had an, an incursion of a type into the Iraqi situation. And obviously, the Kurdish element in Turkey is evolving, let alone on the Iranian side. I would say that the story is still not told. The full story is still revolving or evolving. And I would say that uh, the current Kurdish discourse in Iraq is to be a healthy partner to the rest of Iraq. And we are working based on that. A 
is not lasted. Uh, this one has to do with uh, an aspect of the Kurdish uh, question. Uh, Article 140 of the Constitution addresses the issue of general relations with the Kurdistan region about Kirkuk and its environment. Uh, what will happen there since Article 140 was supposed to have been implemented a few years after voting the Constitution into effect in 2005. Here we are, nine years later, and it appears yet to be implemented. What we have in here, and this was, I think, 2007, should have been completed, if I remember, my memory is certainly wrong. What we have here is still an evolving picture. A concept of closure, which is crucial to the American mindset and way of operating, I would say it's somewhat weak in Iraq. And it's not just a concept in relation to 140. I can give you a long list of other issues in which we have not yet been able to do a proper closure on it. And that's to do with the culture, to do with how important time is, is to do with what are the other priorities and how long thought people are versus short-termism versus versus urgency of issues. Article 140 is one of those items. I'm sure that the political discussions in the next government will try to reflect back on Article 140, how do we go about the demographic issue changes in the Kirkuk. Uh, the, the, the national census has not taken place, and Article 40 is an integral part or directly related to that until we have a better demographic understanding of the evolving pictures in Kirkuk uh, for the last... Uh, we have to understand that this is primarily based on 1957 uh, census versus the 2003 post-situation, in which a, a major demogra demographic changes took place in the Kirkuk, whether it was historically predominantly Kurds, Turkmen were there as well, uh, and now there's, there are Arabs, and there's a bit of disputed uh, territories, as might be called. And that is still evolving. Uh, I don't think Kirkuk is any unique in comparison to the others. The Kurds appreciate the change in the demography. We also have to have a certain element of closure. That will not take place now until the, the census is complete, and until the, this article becomes part of the uh, resolution of the new formation of the government. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. That uh, relates to uh, another question uh, that had to do with uh, Americans uh, failing to achieve closure or even entrance on some of its uh, legally uh, uh, obligatory uh, dynamics. Uh, Article 6 of the United States Constitution says that all international laws, conventions, and treaties to which the United States is a sovereign signatory are the supreme law of the land. And yet the United States, a leader in the passage of the Fourth Geneva Conventions regarding the prohibitions on occupying powers from expropriating up the occupied peoples, remains to be implemented at all by the United States. So this was just a, uh, an overlap with yours there. Uh, why is the legalization of commercial 
and legal documents at your embassy so slow and tedious. <laughs> Many business uh, representatives are always complaining about these delays. What we have in, in, in Iraq is uh, an extremely old bureaucratic systems and process of governing. There hasn't been a significant change in the actual processes uh, primarily after 2003. However, there has been a significant change in the culture to create for customer service and, and accountability and so on. What you have is a people aspirations has been raised, but yet the dynamics of the government to change the legislations for the parliament to effectively change the, the mirror of, uh, I would say, old uh, legislations which are primarily related more to the police state, that's still outstanding. And this part of the, uh, this has led to delay in certain uh, development. Let me give you an example. This is all related to the investment aspect of it as well. We were able to draw uh, various laws uh, encouraging investment, but we still have to uh, align that with old laws as well. And when a conflict takes place, we need to I would say, do better our housewives on that. That's part of it. Uh, the embassy itself has strived to provide the, the best service in visa and others. As far as uh, accreditation to these documents, this is part of the part of the legacy, which we have, which we are working hard on, but it's still not fully addressed. Uh, more so from a timeline point of view. Uh, this next question has to do with your relations with Saudi Arabia. It is known that there are divergences, tensions, and disagreements between the governments in Baghdad and Riyadh. So how do you see relations moving forward with Saudi Arabia? And how would you react to the idea of there being a natural convergence between Iraq's interest in defeating al-Qaeda with the interest uh, of the leadership of Saudi Arabia, uh, wanting also to defeat uh, al-Qaeda. Uh, we haven't seen this kind of cooperation between the two governments. If it exists, would you please enlighten us? If it does not exist, would you please comment as to why and what the prospects are? Uh, Saddam left us with a long list of legacies of distrust uh, between the Iraq and its neighbors. An invasion of Saudi Arabia, invasion of Kuwait, uh, issues with Iran, certainly the invasion of Iran, uh, issues with Turkey, and, and so on. So we already, let alone the Syrian situation. There were both Ba'athist parties, both forming, they were the United country in historically, historically theories, but they were adversaries as well, with Syria. So let alone others. So those who were on the same ideological page couldn't get along with let alone others as well. So unfortunately, that legacy, we're still suffering from it. We are yet uh, to establish, uh, I would say, a, a strong, uh, common uh, vision, common approach, common understanding in, with all our neighbors. The relationship with majority of our neighbors has significantly improved. We've, no, we've uh, tried to normalize and move into partnership with the majority of our neighbors. We were able to do that with Kuwait, Iran, Turkey had, we had challenges with, working with that. 
with Jordan, we have a strategic partner working on as well, Syria, we have challenges, and Saudi Arabia. With the Saudi Arabia, we have uh, reached out with our representation at the uh, ambassadorial level. We have had an ambassador there at, uh, I think, 2009, if I remember correctly, my predecessor in Japan moved on to that. And we are awaiting for full representation of Saudi Arabia at the a residential ambassadorial level. They have a number of residents in, based in Jordan. I think it's part of the legacy. Uh, we are yet to clear up all those legacy issues. The sectarian polarization in the region has not helped us. The issue of uh, Iraq being weak and its neighboring, primarily being Turkey and Iran, tried to influence that situation hasn't helped us. The relationship with Saudi has been trying to deal with domestic uh, operational issues such as Hajj, such as border issues, such as smuggling <coughs> between the borders, you know, that, that sort of thing. We've been working on that part. We've been able to get an arrangement to exchange of prisoners and so on. Yet, if you ask me, do we have a, 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 I would say, a healthy relationship? I would say no. Are we working hard at it? Yes. Are the channel challenges fundamental? I would say no. It's, it need, we need to have a, a more embracing of each other's facts and each other's situation. I think based on that, uh, I, I suspect the relationship can improve significantly. Uh, this one has uh, uh, two or three related uh, uh, parts here. Uh, how are relations between Kuwait and, and Iraq open beyond what you have mentioned in passing thus far, particularly with regard to the status of reparations still due to Kuwait? And uh, related to that, the larger issue of Iraq's relations with the other five GCC countries, and their consensus, almost a consensus, about uh, Iran's meddling or interference in their domestic affairs being a major issue for them, one that they asked the United States before it began the P5 plus 1 negotiations with Iran, uh, if the GCC countries might at least be in those meetings, if only as auditors and observers. Iran said no, and the United States said, okay. Um, that Iran also has interfered in Iraq's uh, domestic affairs, I think, is beyond debate. So Kuwait specifically, uh, because many Iraqis uh, thought for decades that Kuwait should properly be the 19th province of Iraq. Not many Iraqis, I would, I would dispute that Saddam used it as a, an opportunity to expand his uh, leader of the Arab vision, which he wanted to emulate Nasser and others, uh, and the invasion of Kuwait was based on that. He misread the geopolitics of the of the region and the globe, and uh, we have paid the, the price for this miscalculation. Part of that price is we have chapter 7 issues and other. Uh, I would say we are at the high list of UN sanctions than any other country in the world, and we more or less have resolved all those issues. Even the chapter 7 issues, we are out of maybe 53 billion, out the, out the, which was paid to the Saudi, to the Kuwaitis, We've more or less paid around 43 or 44 billion. 
by the end of next year, we will finish all the repayments of that amount. It's already deducts 5% of our revenue even before we, we, we start any calculation on that. So the, the, the process is improving. The relationship with, with Kuwait has more or less moved on into a healthy relationship. Uh, there are uh, issues of airlines and uh, other outstanding issues already resolved. Uh, the representation is at the highest. Uh, the trips, uh, the bilateral trips, the traffic flow between the two countries has significantly improved. Uh, I would say that it's one of the most successful factors of how Iraq has closed, done a closure on its relationship with Kuwait. And uh, the border signs and everything else. And we're still working on that because of the large list of legacy issues. As, as far as the Iran is concerned, Iraq as a state more or less demolished after 2003. It, the whole state collapsed with Saddam. He was able it was like a, a shell. From 80 to 2003, Saddam started chipping on the state parts for that 23 years. At the 2003, you can only see the shell of the state with no real contest, with corruption, legacies, devaluation of the money by 10,000 times. So you have to just imagine that. In 1980, one Iraqi dinar was $3. 2003, one dollar, 3,000 dinars. So that was the economic side, that's the <coughs> demolition or more or less evaporation of the middle class and everything else. We talked about, uh, Anthony, Dr. Anthony talked about some of the numbers. That's the legacy we worked on, which meant that Iraq was a fragile uh, country with no antibodies to deal with any of the neighbors, let alone uh, with, with Iran, whom we have a a large border. Iran to us is somewhat similar to the uh, Mexico and Canada to you. It's not like the Cuba situation. So we have large borders, we have issues, we have large legacy issues to address in the water streams, the oil wells, and so on. Based on that, we have tried as, 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 as much as uh, strength as possible to rebuke any pressure from the Let me give you a simple example. The strategic framework agreement with the United States, that was not the, 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 the fabulous day that they decided. Yeah. And we have other issues. But we have a strategic uh, relationship in relation to uh, religious tourism. We get uh, more than, a, a, I would say, a few millions of Iranians come over for religious tourism. That's a revenue we can't do without for our development and and at the end of the day, you have to deal with your neighbor. You have to contain it, but at the same time, try to have a healthy relationship. And we're working hard at that. Uh, we're not saying that we are 100% healthy in rebuking any of our neighbors. No, we're evolving state. And we talked about that number. I'd be more than happy to share the type of challenges we have, which we're working on. Thank you. Uh, I think before we leave, yes, uh, we would like to hear you prioritize the challenges that would be a good note on which to end, but we have some more questions here. And uh, for clarification on the last one, of the $50 billion in reparations, more than $40 billion. If I remember correctly. Yes, yeah. more than 40, uh, 40 or 40 billion. Yeah. Is this not the government to government versus uh, the private uh, Kuwaiti claims for reparations for damages done to their inventories, homes? Livelihoods, 
which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, remains an issue and awaits uh, Council of, of Deputies. That, uh, as far as I'm aware, there were three issues are standing with the whole Kuwait as an entity. People and government, which was to do with their operation, which is to do with their archives, and to do with uh, their missing uh, uh, Kuwaiti, uh, uh, not pure yeah, because they were not prisoners of war, missing in action. That's the, 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 every now and then recently, my minister and our foreign services took part of that archive back. And we still have, um, by the way, the government pays for people who say, if there's still an outstanding Kuwaiti items in your house, please bring it and we'll pay for it. So that's what we're working on. Uh, as far as I'm aware, the, the Kuwaiti issue would be closed by the people because we already opened that up and we went through that uh, painful process. There is a still um, might be a question which is to do with international issues, but we're going through the passport with countries and, and companies, and we were still working on that. To move back over to economic related issues. Can I just say one thing on this issue? Sure. You have to imagine a country going through wars which was imposed by the dictator, one of the most ruthless dictators in history, not elected, nothing. Yet the country has to has been penalized, and we have said, okay, we as a state, we as people will pay for that recklessness of the dictator. And this is what's taking place. Against all the issues we have, we're not a, a technically still not a rich country. We may have a rich revenue coming in, but we still have major challenges in our infrastructure. So that's the extent. And we know that Kuwait doesn't need that one. But we are more than happy. We are more than willing to say, we need to get a closure on this issue. They are our brothers, they suffered, we have to get a closure. And that's part of it. One thing that's making your responses so rich and well received is um, from our media and Congress and others <coughs> talk shows, the absence of context, the absence of background, the absence of perspective. You're providing all three of these to Thank the you answer your questions, and we're indebted to you for that and more. Uh, how do you see Iraq's uh, oil production, near term, medium term, long term? We have one of our interns, former interns, working for one of the largest oil companies uh, in your country, and uh, therefore we are proud uh, of that. He, he would not have gone into that field had he not been an intern here. But he's a, a human bridge between uh, you and, and us. Uh, so Iraq's oil production, you mentioned by 2030, would be the world's second largest in terms of production and exports of production at least. What we are working on, we have a, 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 a drive by the government uh, to increase our oil production substantially to make up for all the lost ability to build in our infrastructure. Imagine a country not going through the redevelopment or rehabilitation for three decades. Since, 80, since 1980, since the war with Iran started, the government stopped doing any investments, any developments, any new hospitals, and so on, until 2003. So, with the destruction took place after 2003, imagine all that accumulation. We as a government had the determination to increase our capability, to increase our export beyond the current standards, beyond the current OPEC standards and others, because we think that there is a 
a lost opportunity which we need to recap on. We need to revitalize our economy based on that. Uh, rebuilding our infrastructure and so on. And that's where we drive it. Over the last 10 years, if you look at with all the challenges of Iraq, one of the key success factors, for example, has been the increase and stabilization rate development and increase in oil protection with all the challenges we have. That's the only one of the very few output graphs in the oil development sector. However, we know that this is not a very labor-intensive industry. It recruits less than 1% of our workforce. So we need to re-energize, regenerate that money into other sectors for, for, for our development and for our employment rate. That's where we're coming from. International uh, agency, uh, international uh, energy agency last year did an extensive report uh, which uh, gave three scenarios. And the middle scenario was something like by 2020, we'll be around 26.25 million barrels. And we are on target to achieve that. We have substantially increased our capabilities. Uh, international companies from long walk of life and uh, all countries are, are participating uh, in various uh, licenses uh, uh, we've done uh, in, in Iraq, and we're, so we're developing that. The, like, Iraq is the only country with the capability to substantially increase uh, oil in relation to any other oil country, because we have the wealth, the, the low percentage of exploration at this moment, and also because of the uh, ability that quick ability to extract the oil. It doesn't require a lot of investment. It doesn't uh, to extract it in, in relation to the profit margin I'm talking about. It's one of those lowest countries in, in producing. I'm not saying it's lowest, it's one of those lowest. So it's a very incentive uh, environment, uh, capability for companies to be worked on. We are still working on the production sharing, oh, sorry, the, the, the service contracts and, and so on. And we're still involved with that. That's still involved. However, the key message to take away is the country as people, as government, as institutions are determined to substantially increase our production because we need that money to, to, to re-energize the, the, the economy. That's a demand, that's a need. That's not a, a political decision, that's a necessity. Um, related to that question uh, and the claim that by 2030 you'll be number two, uh, is one that was coming later having to do with Iran, that uh, Iran would stand a greater chance of becoming number two than Iraq for the following three reasons. One, unlike uh, Iraq, it has substantial known proven offshore uh, reserves along its 550-mile-long coast with some 19 ports that can be developed. Uh, Iraq is shorter, of fewer than 50 miles, barely a card-carrying Gulf uh, country, uh, and much of its offshore is, has been silted up as a result of the long Iran-Iraq war. Iran also has the world's second largest gas reserves and still unexplored or untapped or modernized uh, oil reserves. In addition to being the only uh, country in the Middle East that has uh, acreage also on the Caspian Sea, which is also energy rich. 
leading some to conclude that Iran is the greater strategic prize with regard to energy issues and perhaps developmental issues also. Let me put it this way. Uh, if I'm a, an, an oil uh, energy consumer, this is music to my ear. Uh, two countries are competing for producing uh, uh, more uh, richer oil at faster rate to the global economy via various routes. If I am a, an Iraqi, I will say that's a, a good competition to be in. Uh, the international demand of that. Uh, and we will compete for that. Uh, for, for free market economy, it has its own dynamics, and it's, we're okay with that. As much as uh, the diversity and, and, and others as well, I agree there's a, an issue of the bottleneck of the South. However, we have been working hard to provide uh, other platforms to increase the capability, uh, to diversify via Jordan, via, uh, via Turkey, we already we were in discussion prior to the Syrian situation to revitalize the pipeline we already had with Syria. Uh, so we already are thinking about diversifying, working uh, on diversifying our uh, export capabilities. Are we in competition with Iran? I hope that we have a global partnership in providing a stable source of economy to stabilize the global economy. Oil should not be used as a weapon to destabilize the world on the country. It should be a healthy product used by country consciously with environmental thoughtfulness put into it, and it should be a, a tool of a bridging countries, not a competing and fighting. This one has to do with um, uh, the view that Iraq was once the medical uh, capital, uh, the most prestigious center for healthcare facilities, medical research, medical in the region. Today there is the opposite, there's medical flight with uh, uh, doctors and other uh, healthcare professionals leaving uh, the country uh, for care on top of uh, patients leaving uh, the country for care. So uh, in light of the government's uh, GDP, what is the government's uh, inclination to court U.S. Healthcare organizations to assist in rebuilding this fundamental aspect of uh, social reform and dynamics and needs in Iraq. And apropos this last week, that was the first ever Arab U.S. healthcare summit uh, in New York. Uh, Saudi Arabia was prominently featured to a lesser degree uh, the Emirates. Uh, so this is a, a new sector. Great potential for both that country's people. We see that sector as also an important sector for the development of U.S. Iraq relationship. Iraqis have, in their recent memory, a clear uh, consciousness about uh, how well the country was doing. So we have a good example to try to emulate in our own history, let alone in our neighbors or uh, global partners. So that history is until 1980. And therefore, it's uh, one of the drivers. People say, we were good. We were able to be the, uh, the cornerstone of the, of the region in relation to education, in relation to healthcare, and, 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 and social welfare, and so on. In a way, that's a good example for us to try to, to vitalize. As far as the challenge is concerned, uh, 
The country is increasing by a population of 1 million every year. It's one of the highest growth, uh, population growth in the world. Not the highest, but it's one of the highest. Which means that we need to uh, keep up with that throughput of increase by, by building uh, new hospitals, schools, and other infrastructures. The capability of the people to have the cash flow to need the medical care and therefore go overseas because A, they have the passport, they're able to travel, they have the cash in their pockets, and they're not getting the local services sufficiently money, then they are going abroad. And we are encouraging for the healthcare of the people, not for the, the economical development. We're saying that people haven't got the, uh, the facilities at home to do, then let's talk. And our ministries of health is having discussions with India, for example, in Malaysia, uh, neighboring countries, Iran, uh, um, I think uh, Beirut was one of the centers which we always use that, in addition to uh, Western countries, to say, okay, we need to have partnership because we don't have that services back home. At the same time, we were working in development of new hospitals. Uh, we've got uh, quite new uh, hospitals acquired by the Japanese, managed by the Japanese, Germans, and Italians and Turkish companies. So we're trying to cope up uh, our, beef up our uh, medical care services. However, the population growth plus their cash ability plus their travel ability means that they may go elsewhere. And we're saying we're okay with that. But we need ourselves to try to have a new hospitals so that the, econ the local economies and employment and so on is uh, beefed up. Uh, can you educate us about Al-Anbar province? Uh, a look at the map would suggest that it is nearly one-third the size of, of all of Iraq and bigger than any of the other provinces. Uh, and even if the Iraqi military is able to defeat the uprising in Al-Anbar, uh, such a military victory uh, would be temporary, as I think you indicated. There's no The size of it doesn't reflect the population representation. This is uh, primarily desert. Historically, even during the highest uh, capabilities of the Iraqi army, it, it usually let the tribes and uh, locals manage that province because of the size of it, because of the inhospitality of it, and so on. And it usually focused on the, the strip or the border strip that has been usually the gentleman's or border police. That's the historical perspective into it. So it always has an issue of local control. That's, that's where we're coming from. The Americans, and uh, with all their uh, capabilities, have difficulties managing that. 
with two harsh chapters in their, in, in, during their invasion of Iraq. And therefore, we have good perspective and good uh, historical narrative to, to, to compare to. And we are conscious of that. We are also conscious that uh, the Al-Qaeda is trying to utilize their, their uh, infiltration of cities as a base. And we are also conscious not to uh, barge into these cities and, and, and uh, sort of have a, a gun-ho approach to it. We're conscious of that. Uh, we're trying to work with the local police, with the local tribe. The, the, our key partners are those who are elected, by the way, the governor of Ambar, the, the tribes and others, local authorities. They are elected and they're working with us. We're providing arms, we're providing some uh, capabilities, uh, funds, uh, but we are new as a military institution. We are new, we, we're just, uh, we talked about it. We did, we, we still short of a single fighter plane. So and that's why we're working with our American friends uh, in, in uh, our F-16 program and our Apache program, whom has been approved by Congress. We're working on that delivery issue and so on. Um, Next month, I will go to the graduation of our uh, F-16 pilots. I went to some last August. Now this is the, the main course. So we are beefing up our capabilities to have a better control and to try to contain the situation within Ambar and certainly try to uh, try to dislodge it from the Syrian situation because that's a key challenge. What we have is jihadists from Chechnya to Afghanistan coming to Iraq. And I called it the, bat the battlefront. It is the battlefront. That's unfortunate. The Syrian situation has not been addressed. We still can't see the light at the end of that situation. And it's automatically having a direct impact <coughs> on us. Through the open border, through the, 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 the tunneling of monies, funds, and, and, and jihadists, and so on. So that's a, a challenge, and that's what we're saying. We're saying what's taking place is an Ambar is an international challenge, not just an Iraqi In addition to the political situation, we talked about. You mentioned the Ba'ath Party on several occasions there, en route to other points, or included in larger points. Um, what is the status of the former Ba'ath Party members? Uh, in terms of being incorporated into the government, or estimates of how many ran in the most re uh, recent elections, and uh, what is the status of the return of property confiscated by the Ba'athists? We had uh, committees set up in negotiation with Parliament, uh, primarily after the administration took place, Early last year, uh, which was led by the Deputy Prime Minister for Energy, Shafiq uh, Tashar He looked into cases, I think there were about 3,500 or thereabout cases. We tried to expedite some of those uh, who were uh, sort of harshly treated or who were unjustly treated or who were not able to go back to their work and so on. However, we also have a, a legacy of. Baptist uh, being correlated to the destruction of country. That's what you have to think about. In, in people's psychology, uh, Baptist is very similar to the Nazism element in Germany. It's they led to the destruction of the country 
good whiskey uh, that are dealing with the, the locals, let alone with the neighbors. That's for the psychological issue. The key challenge has been uh, for us is to try to get a balance between the stability and peace for the society versus the justice and versus the ability to get a closure for the people who were the victims of the violence. That's the key challenge. As far as the elections concerned, for example, there were less than 20 people disbarred from, from uh, having, uh, from, from putting their names forward as candidates. Less than 20. I've talked about 9,000 names, less than 20. So we have, in this election, we have not had any serious discuss as to who should be disbarred, whether they are senior Sunnis or senior Baptists, ex-Baptists, or some of them still declare their, uh, their uh, uh, I would say their, uh, to them it's the, the nostalgic days of the Baptists. They declare that in the media, although by the Constitution is legal. The Constitution stipulates the Baptists are a bad party. And that's agreed by the country, by the whole population. So we have an issue of the injustice, the past injustice, versus the might be currently the, 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 the political sort of stability of the country. Um, this question um, perhaps feeds off of that uh, answer, at least in terms of the chances for a coalition government in Iraq, if Mr. Maliki now believes that only majority rule works, which would seem to leave open the possibility, if not the probability, of one of his current allies simply leaving uh, the state of law coalition. The reference here is to, I think, Ayad Alawi and his followers, and uh, an echo of the American situation where in 2000, in the, the United States, the person who got the most votes lost. Uh, could you address uh, that along with what has happened to Muqtada Asadr, uh, who was once um, quite a uh, controversial figure, and the role of Ali Sistani. Now, many in the audience, not being specialists on Iraq, would benefit from your educating us on uh -huh. each of those. I'm here humbly to tell you that I'm educated. The country is uh, still uh, evolving in who has the, the moral, uh, political authority. And the role of Marja'iyah, the role of Najaf, has been primarily to work with the government and to project some harmony, to project some stability, to project some maturity of the government in providing services and others. Grand Ayatollah Sistani has led that uh, campaign. And for example, during the peak of the civil war, it was uh, the, the primary factor which positively tilted towards stabilizing the country by saying you should not be indiscriminate in your revenge, you should let the state handle these issues and so on. So he has been uh, one of the heroes of Iraq over the last 10 years. People have seriously talked about him getting a Nobel Prize, Peace Prize. And I think he's worthy of that because of his positive role in the stabilizing, harmonizing, developing Iraq uh, and, and that's a testament to his, uh, uh, I would say, the, the humility and his testament to his ability to have that, that big heart. 
Bearing in mind, he's not an, even an Iraqi nationalist. He doesn't even vote. He doesn't hold Iraqi national objectives. So that's more or less reflects the era. You know, somebody perhaps that influence because of his position and because of his ability to father the country. As far as uh, say Muqtada al-Sadr, Muqtada al-Sadr uh, is a religious uh, leader. Uh, he has, uh, I think recently, was outside the country, went to Lebanon, and now, if I remember correctly, three days ago, he, went back, he came back to Iraq. He has declared that he was somewhat unhappy with his own political parties, uh, or those who are associated with him, but the lack of uh, uh, focus on the development of the people, uh, and more inward focus, as you mentioned earlier in your introduction. So I think in that sense, he is uh, somebody who is aspiring to play a positive role in the development of Iraq. And we are will, we are will coming back. Uh, as far as uh, the, the majority government, I think there is uh, maybe some, some misunderstanding. What we are saying is, this current government, the last three governments, has been one in which there is no opposition party. None. No single parliamentarian can say I'm an opposition. Because all the political bloc, all, have had representation at the parliament, have had representation in the government, have had representation at the cabinet level. Cabinet level. So, what we have now where we're saying this might be ineffective and inefficient in the development. Primarily because of decision making. So what we're driving at is we're saying we need to have representation of all walk of life of Iraq, but it doesn't have to be all in, in government. Why can't we have a healthy opposition parties who have a primary role in checks and balance? Bear in mind that the parliamentarians have the authority to legislate and monitor. So that's a, a key role of, for them, is they have the authority to monitor the executive. So why can't, why should all the Shias have, have representation at the cabinet? Why should some of them who, who become opposition? Why shouldn't some of the Sunnis or the Kurds or others? So this is where we're coming from. We need to have more policy-oriented than uh, ethnicity-oriented government. That's where the key discussion. Nobody is saying there shouldn't be any Sunni in the government. There shouldn't be any Shia. Or the prime minister has to be from a, a certain party or a certain... Nobody's calling for that. And I think we'll have to wait until the election results. Now, this one, uh, we're coming near the end here, calls for comment. Uh, that this last week in uh, Washington, the Secretary of Treasury, uh, Mr. Lubes, said his view was that economic stability is key to political stability. There are those of us who believe it's no, it's the other way around. That political stability is more key to economic stability than the reverse. And examples were given that during the eight-year Iran-Iraq war, the external situation for the six GCC countries was unstable, but the domestic situation was very stable, indeed arguably more stable than any other six neighboring developing countries. You have a situation here where in the 80s, during the war with Iran, there were more than 50 American company members of the then Iraq-US Business Council. 
the last time I checked, and correct me if I'm wrong, there are not even 15 American companies and members of such a council. What's going on? 35. 35. Very bad. Okay, thank you. Uh, I think that's quite an increase. I, I, I want to interject another dimension. The discussion we have in Iraq is does security come in before the political development or is, is security a prerequisite for political development or vice versa? Let alone the economic development. So we have a bit more third dimension to think about as well. That's an evolving picture, primarily because we are uh, still not in a mature phase of our political establishment, and certainly we are immature as, as far as democracy is concerned. We are just starting that, the first decade of a democratic country, in a long road. So in, in that sense, we appreciate the, 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 dis the discussions and the heated discussions sometimes as to where, where does the development content, where does the political, economical, social development comes in, and where does the security comes in. However, you have a, a regional polarization taking place. That's an issue. You have Syria, a uh, major destabilizing factor in the region taking place as well. And culturally, the whole region is more politically oriented than economically oriented. That's a cultural uh, narrative. So it's unlike uh, other countries uh, who might be more thinking about prosperity as the only factor. But with us, the issue of pride is a, an important factor, and as I'm sure Dr. Yunus. Yes, um, on that, there is the phrase that no one seems to disagree with, <coughs> that capital is a coward. <coughs> it uh, does not enter places that are uncertain, unclear that in places like Azerbaijan and elsewhere in Caucasus and Central Asia, uh, in the early 1990s, this was believed to be another Saudi Arabia. And American oil companies, Chevron, ExxonMobil, and others invested uh, hundreds of billions, more than a billion in those areas. Here we are 24 years later, and it's still not clear, it's certain, uh, enough to satisfy foreign direct investors. That's <coughs> comment here. Uh, but related uh, to that uh, in terms of the economic aspect, is the Iraqi government working with the Norwegian sovereign wealth funds to develop its own sovereign wealth fund rapidly and strategically? And if not, the Norwegians um, are you working on uh, establishing a sovereign wealth fund? Uh, I, I wish we are, but I don't think we are. Uh, I think we are just as, uh, I mean, the Minister of Finance was here for his autumn IMF World Bank, uh, and for his <coughs> spring IMF World Bank and the governor, we had that this type of discussion. We are still uh, need to uh, majorly revamp our financial institutions and to have a clear view of how do we start these development funds, how do we start these international uh, uh, projects, of developing Iraq in, in the financial sector, and how do we best utilize our own uh, revenues from the oil? That's still evolving. I'm, I'm not aware we have discussion with the Norwegians, uh, but I think it's a, a great example to emulate, and uh, it's an, an inspiring uh, project for us to uh, case study to think about. Last question. Uh, during the uh, heat of the Cold War in the 1950s, President Eisenhower 
was a leading visionary in establishing a sister cities program that paired American cities with cities in other countries, uh, quite a few of them in the Arab world, and many, many, many more in Israel than the Arab world combined. Um, Maryland has a sister state relationship with Baghdad. Do you have any, what suggestions do you have for developing such relationships? We were, we have certain governors who they have been to the United States and tried to work on that. Uh, I think the Houston was one, which is the governor of Boston, for example, and so on. So we were trying to get better understanding of these examples. However, uh, I, I personally think that uh, the focus has to be on the quality of that relationship, and not on the quantity. I know, for example, Basra had uh, something like five sisters. I was in, uh, in Japan, Yokohama, we tried to sustain with, with Basra as a port. And I think we need to focus on the quality of that relationship, how much lessons we went in their recycling, environmental, the planning, uh, urban planning and so on. Uh, we are still new at it, I would say. We have good examples to follow, but I, I don't think we've done enough of our homework to fully utilize that uh, I'm bringing this to a close. I neglected to mention in the introductory remarks how Baghdad had been the center of the Islamic world for half of 1,000 years, roughly from 750 to 1250 AD, uh, longer than any other one single capital as such. Um, it was the center of science, of technology, research, development, the arts, the humanities, the social sciences. Um, the world learned a lot uh, from Iraq at that time, and you've helped us to learn a lot uh, from and about Iraq this time. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you. Thank you.